Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Torrance Witherspoon. And I'm Terrell Couch. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to not buy a house. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. All right, so this week, three white men that were found guilty of murdering Ahmed Arbery were also found guilty of hate crimes and other charges a federal jury ruled this week. Not the white man. The jury only took a couple of hours of deliberation before coming to a verdict. Terrell Torrance, this has been considered a win for a Justice Department that has vowed to prosecute hate crimes more aggressively and for civil rights groups that have been fighting for more accountability and racially motivated attacks across or against Black Americans. I'm just going to leave it all to you what do you all think Torrance? you go first specifically i mean i think this is great it's a lot of symbolism for the most part because these three men are all already serving life terms um in prison for the murder of ahmaud arbery um but i think that like you alluded to in your in your um introduction of the piece that this does speak to the justice department's uh living up to their vow to prosecute hate crimes more aggressively and of course for civil rights groups seeing any accountability in these kinds of cases is really important and i think speaks to some sort of progress but also i want to make the point that Ahmad arbery that that situation was so overt mm-hmm. so clear so un um I don't think there's an, a clear argument that could be made against uh, what we all saw on on camera, but also just what was fact. And so I think that this is a great step forward, but also I hope to see this kind of accountability in other cases that may not be as clear and and cut cut dry. Excuse me. Yeah, I I would echo that. I'm going to be fully transparent. I've stopped paying attention. Um, there, there is an exhaustion that comes with being black in this country especially in these cases. And I do think that needs to be lifted up of it is great. And I'm so glad that the justice system worked in this situation, but there are more times that I feel African-Americans in this culture feel that the justice system won't work. So they won't pay attention. And I've fallen prey to that. Um, I mean, look no further than the cop who accidentally grabbed their gun instead of their taser only getting two years. Like there, there are these ramifications that I do think a lot of individuals feel um, but just as Torrance highlighted, this was so blatant. This was so clear. It was obvious that they felt a African-American black male could not be in their community. And that's the reason they followed him. And to make an argument that that wasn't motivated by race is to be ignorant and unaware of the surroundings or the context of that case. So I'm happy. But at the same time, I've I've tuned out a lot of this stuff. Let's take it down to Florida for a bit. The original House sponsor of the Florida House bill dubbed the quote, don't say gay bill. Republican Representative Joe Harding introduced an additional amendment to the already controversial bill that would require educators to disclose a child's sexual orientation appearance within six weeks if they come to find out that that student has come out as something other than straight. This is in addition to the main bill that generally seeks to regulate discussions on sexual orientation and gender identity and would give parents the power to sue violators. Um, Proponents of the legislation say this will empower parents to be involved Involved in the conversation about their students' sexual identity, while opponents say that this say that school may be the only safe space for kids to talk about their sexuality, and this bill will hurt kids who are not yet ready to come out to their parents or feel unsupported. 
Part of the language in this bill reads, quote, the school principal or his or her designee shall develop a plan using all available gov governmental resources to disclose such information within six weeks after the, after the decision to withhold such information from the parent. It adds that plan, quote, must facilitate disclosure between the student and parent through an open dialogue in a safe, supportive and judgment free environment that respects the parent child relationship and protects the mental, emotional and physical well-being of the student, end quote, according to the proposed language. Um, earlier this month, President Biden personally called this legislation hateful. Um, and just to be up on it, I was checking as we're recording. This was this this amendment to the bill was being debated today in the Florida mm -hmm. um, the Florida House, um, and it actually they did end up not passing this amendment to add it to the bill, which I think is really really great. It's a win. Um, it certainly doesn't solve the entire problem, but I would say I would be lying if I didn't say that this amendment to the bill frightened me the most deeply. Mm -hmm. um, this, this would have resulted in the death of kids, for sure. Whether that be a student who is outed and and knows the repercussions that could come from that given their family's beliefs and values and the way that they would be treated and that could take their own life or self-harm. Um, but also, we have no idea what a parent would do, what a family member would do, right? A parent might love their child, but who knows what a grandparent, a uncle, a cousin would do, inflict any sort of discrimination, any physical pain, and God forbid kill a student a person a young you know a young kid for their sexual identity um that was deeply frightening you know and i think that as someone who is openly gay i cannot i cannot imagine what that would have been like when i was young if i would have been outed to my parents before i mean i actually do not know what I would have done. I have no idea how they would have handled it, uh, given how things went when I did come out. Probably not so great um, had it been not on my own terms. So this bill, um, you know, this is this is a win that that amendment is being taken out, but they are still trying to pass two two laws in tandem that would still um, allow for us to regulate discussions around gender identity and sexual orientation in the classroom. Um, and and the, the most kind of, I think, really terrible part about this is giving parents the um, opportunity to sue schools, to sue educators who have any of these conversations, which is completely subjective. The opinion on what is too, what is too far and what is not too far when we're talking about the general term of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, of course, you guys can see how I feel about this. Terrell, Caleb, um, I want to get your thoughts on the bill as a whole and obviously just this development that the amendment has not passed and will not be attached to the bill. Caleb, can I hear from you first? Yeah, I... I mean, thank God it didn't pass. But I mean, just just listening to you and, and reading about it, I mean, like, this just goes against, like, the basic freedoms that we enjoy as Americans. I mean, this is what this is literally what the Republican Party has fought against with everything in terms of misinformation, the elections, vaccines and all that stuff. They have literally fought because of freedom, but then turn around to take it away from others. It's about control, and this is a fucking disgusting amendment to a bill that's already disgusting. Um, I don't know if there's much more to say than that. I'm glad it didn't pass. Just Jesus. I think for me, the the point is, where did the conservative party go, right? Like, this is a party that had the don't ask, don't tell movement that understood that people had their sexual identities and just didn't want to address it. So how is this now a party that is going to force a child? Like we really need to qualify that this is a youth that is being put in a space that is now forced to identify so that the parents can do X, Y, and Z. How is this a party that is now feeling, oh no, throw this in the forefront and make 
those individuals feel ashamed of who they are, ashamed of why they they feel the way that they do. And I know we are in a time where um, having that view on conservatism is weird because obviously the conservatives of today are nothing like the conservatives from the early 2000s. But I do genuinely question how did we end up in a space where this type of language is being championed by a, a major party, right? How how are we in a space where, um, even though it was from the Supreme Court and not from our Congress, there was an understanding that everyone deserves the right to love who they love. Everyone deserves the right to be who they are. And to hear language and to hear um, a, policy that, uh, a policy of that stature is just disgusting. And in, in just to add to that point, the on the, on the legal front, actually, I, I was watching the coverage and just reading up on it before we started recording, that one of the reasons that this amendment did not pass is that there's also a question around its constitutionality because that the language I was quoting was direct bill language yeah. that's, that specifically said, I come out as anything other than straight, which sets you up immediately for a, a legal, uh, a discrimination case on, on the legality of it because you have isolated straightness as the only thing acceptable outside of the other identities. So I think that that was also a, a big legal factor in this not this amendment not passing. But more acutely to what you were referencing, what did happen mm-hmm. to individual civil liberties, right? What happened to freedom? And I was, and it's so funny that you had worded that way, Caleb, because when I read this earlier, I said, if this is freedom, then I'm not that interested in it. Like, yeah. if this is the freedom they're selling, this is this is not freedom. And quite frankly, to out a child about their sexual identity or their sexual orientation or gender identity in a way that could result in harm, that is fascistic. It's that is up. that that mm-hmm. that is that is traits of fascism to to expose and out someone. Um, against their will it's it's and yes it is they are kids and yes parents have a a say but then run for pta then run for school board then oh. run for office if you care so much parent no. this public school was and i did this is a point that i think is, is so important to this and to the crt conversation is that public schools were not meant to educate within the confines and the and, and what parents wanted absolutely it was to set up our our society with a well-skilled and an educated people for the sake of society that's why we all are paying for the education not just the parents if you have such want such a say in your child's curriculum and education do the things i just outlined so you can do it through the right channels or send them to a private school my 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 tax dollars are meant to not meant to educate your child how you want them to but to educate your child and to give them the skills to be successful in our society that respects everyone yeah not just your views And I don't want to dive into the education issue because it's something that I'm very passionate about. But I do want to add, I was thoughtful when I said don't. I'm tired of playing this game that, yes, your voice matters and you need to be a part of it. If you are still stuck in this mindset that your son, daughter, or individual who, however they identify, needs to come out to you so that you can articulate it or you can have some say in how your child understands sexuality... You don't need to be involved in politics. You don't need to run for PTA. You don't need to be on the school board. You don't need to be in those spaces because you know where that reminds me of. It reminds me of the 1960s where a lot of white folk were sitting on those PTAs, those school boards, those higher levels and telling people that black people can be in their schools. And this is a critical part that I do think is being left out of the conversation. We have moved past that. Whether we really feel like we have say what you will. But we as a people have moved past that. And 
sure, you have powers because you're in a country that's free. But I'm telling you right now, if you are listening to this podcast, I don't care. Don't. Because you don't have a voice. You don't belong there. There are people in this country who deserve to feel free and accepted and loved by the country that they're a part of. And for you to step up in a place of power and try to use that power to oppress them and smother them is just ignorant to what the country is. And I do agree with that. Yeah. I was like, I'd rather them not, but there are, there, I was like, there are ways to go about doing what they are seeking, but I would rather them not. <laughs> Let's check out the international fold. On Monday, February 21st, Russian President Vladimir Putin increased his assault on the Ukrainian sovereignty in a fiery speech claiming all Ukraine as a country created by Russia. Putin took additional steps to begin an invasion of the country, recognizing independency for two regions in eastern Ukraine, Donetsk and Relinsky, excuse me, and instructing Russian military to each region as peacekeepers, in quotes, for the separatist regimes. The international community has taken immediate steps to punish the Russian government throughout economic sanctions and public agreements. However, Caleb, Torrance, I have to ask, are we on the course for war? And furthermore, should we go to war for Ukrainians if Americans are effectively removed in preparation for um, what Putin has threatened as a continual bloodshed? Caleb, I'll start with you. Um, <laughs> oh, I mean, talk about time, a loaded question. I mean, 100%. Holy shit. By the time this podcast comes out, he might have actually invaded the whole damn country. Uh, look, eh. I think that even if he invades, I don't think we're going straight to war. I think we're really far away from that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we're that far away from a low grade war. And what I mean by that is the US government, first of all, the US intelligence has not missed like holy shit they knew this was coming months ago and they have hit the fucking they have just knocked it out of the park with their intelligence we yeah. know we've known every single move that putin was going to make and we knew he was going to do it like half a year ago and biden made some critical decisions to make this information public mm -hmm. declassify information quickly so we all know open up communication with allies really early so that they can get that information too and Honestly, I think it's worked so far. Even if Putin is going to do it anyways, I'm not um, I'm not 100% sure what else he could have done. But I will say that the US US officials have repeatedly told us that if Russia takes over Ukraine, we will fund <laughs> we will fund um uh uh like militias and an uprising in Ukraine and whatnot. And the last time we did that was when Russia was in Afghanistan and it worked. So I don't know if there's a great, even if Putin does it and he feels like he's starting to regain the glory of the USSR or whatever bullshit that he's been spouting <laughs> off about. Um, I don't know if it looks good for Russia, even if it looks like he won in the short term. Mm -hmm. um, economic sanction wise, Germany came out on Tuesday and said no to the Nordic pipeline um, from Russia, which I think is a massive deal. I also think that Germany needs to figure out how they're going to get energy because I actually, this is a different topic about climate change. I actually don't think they should have gotten rid of their nuclear plants, but that's a different topic. That's a whole nother topic, <laughs> but important to why Ukraine is in the situation is. But. Well, it's also important to why they need that Russian gas in the first place, but mm -hmm. um, good for Germany. Uh, hopefully that 
hurts the people around um, Putin and Putin's own finances just enough to really start to really help him start to feel the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think the sanctions we're going to throw on is really going to hurt him. And I think a lot of us are okay in terms of the country's leaders that it might hurt us a little bit too. But one last point I'm going to make before hopping over to you, Torrance, Russia's like impact to the global economy is not the same as like the U S or China. It's actually kind of minimal. And yep. while we will feel effect from this, it's not going to be what I actually read a New York times article that claimed and argued that it would not be the same as when the pandemic hit and the world shut down for a little while. It'll, it won't be as bad because yeah. Russia has 150 million people, but they almost don't participate in the global economy at all. Yeah. That's for a whole bunch of other reasons. Yeah. yeah so I'm agreeing with you. I, I, I think overall, like I don't, I think my final point is that the, that Russia, Putin and the USSR are still failing. It's just taking a long time. And I think this further proves that they're kind of a failing state. Yeah. My concern though, to that point is that this has not, that the, the economic sanctions will do very little mm-hmm. because based on his speech, this is not about that this is about a deeply held belief that the fall of the Soviet Union was a grave mistake, that they were wronged, which is, and I, and I want to draw the parallels because here's where I think that we're not being serious enough about something from an American perspective, not mm-hmm. our leaders, but from us as a people is that, do you know who felt the same way? Nazi Germany. Yeah. Yep. After, absolutely. you know, like, like, and who felt that they were wronged in those treaties that is how that is how Putin feels about about the Soviet Union, Union about Russia. The fact that he has already had the uh, the audacity to to sign decrees to mm-hmm. invade those two independent um, areas in Ukraine to break their sovereignty sovereignty of Ukraine. I think that them putting out these lists of people that they would imprison and camps and kill that this is very concerning. Yeah. And I don't think that our, our economic sanctions are going to do as much as we would like them to do because this is not about that. This mm-hmm. is about an ideological belief that, this, that, that these are rightfully uh, Russian um, Russian, you know, land, essentially. That, that yeah. he, I mean, he went so far in his speech to say that Ukraine has never had its own unique nationhood, right? Yep. So he does not see those as sovereign nations. And I think that it is concerning that he has laid out an entire plan and has continued to move forward on it, despite all of the incremental sanctions that we have threatened, that we have started to put on. Mm-hmm. I'm concerned that he is going to make, this is a man who's getting older, who is thinking about his legacy as a leader, about what he tr- has tried and maybe will succeed to do or tried and failed to do in the name of um, the great you know, mother Russia. Yeah. And so I'm concerned that, we're, that, that we are, I think we're taking the appropriate actions right now, but I'm concerned that we as Americans are not seeing this for the conflict that it could be. Mm-hmm. And that we have a, that we have a certain level of selfishness in our in our lack of support to be more involved in in deterring Russia's aggression towards Ukraine. Yeah. And that I truly believe I don't want this to be the case. But I, but if they do have a full scale invasion of Ukraine, and then I think further he would continue into Eastern Europe, that we have to so we have to commit troops. And to the yeah. point of like the selfishness is that we, you know we were looking at the polling of how par- Americans feel about us getting into it militarily, and it's abysmal the support, right? Mm-hmm. But what's so frustrating about that is like we just occupied Afghanistan for twenty years, and what do you, like just do Americans think we were there alone? That our allies were not there, did not commit troops, did not commit funding. Like, are we that ignorant and that yes. selfish that we think that, <laughs> that, that that we've done right? Like, no, we are. You're, well, you're right. We that. absolutely yes, yes, we are. are. But it's so concerning because I'm afraid, and I keep thinking about this. Is like, God forbid, 
that this actually does escalate in a way that is similar to to um, the First World War. Mm-hmm. That will we get in too late? Will we? Mm-hmm. Will, will, will there be so much bloodshed and horror to people because of and and. I, I don't know, right? Like we don't yeah. know what's going to happen, but I don't see Russia as a logical and rational actor. And I certainly don't see Putin as one. So that's yeah. concerning to me. That's one place where I would push back a little bit. Like I, I do think Putin is operating from some, I don't want to say rationality because that that's that seems like it's justifying his actions, right? Which I don't. Right. But I do think context, as I always say, context matters. It, Russia as a nation successfully annexed Crimea. Whether we recognize that as an annexation or not, there are Russians who view Crimea as a part of their country. And that's, again, another separate conversation because Russian people versus Russian government are not the same. Very similar to how we talk about uh, issues in Israel, Turkey, so forth and so on. But in doing that, I do think his speech was very very important to that strategy of recognizing by saying, I view these regions as separatist regions who would prefer to be a part of this country. He, he did, I would say he went a step back from what he did with Crimea of I'm not taking them over. I'm recognizing them as their own countries. I just created two countries and said that these regions are separate. They deserve their own, their own uh, boundaries and regions. And for that we are sending in quote unquote peacemakers to ensure that they keep their sovereignty. Obviously we all know what that means, but I do think that that speaks to his, his understanding of how he's playing chess in this moment. But one thing I wanted to bring up, um, and I know our Twitter shared this, but um, the Kenyan administrator or the Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations security council, um, Martin Kamani gave this very impassionate speech that I think attests to exactly what you shared, Torrance, and what you've highlighted, Caleb. Um, and something that I think Americans tend to forget: Africa as a a continent was divided up after a war and determined. Here's all these players get this land. There was no understanding of ethnical, cultural, spiritual, any type of people boundaries big powers decided who got what. And I don't want to completely equate this to where Ukraine is because there was some intentionality of how the breakup of the, F- of the USSR happened. And one of the reasons Ukraine occupied so much space is because it had such a large nuclear um, assault or artillery that resulted in an agreement that brought it its sovereignty. And that's what put us where we are. However, when the ambassador gave the speech, he spoke to understanding how the Ukrainian people feel, how separatists might feel of seeing their brother in another country and seeing themselves in another country because they share a culture or commonality. However, the distinction between African countries and where we are right now is in those African countries, they recognize that they could be in wars for generations they could fight over land and they could fight over boundaries and all of these spaces. And I'm paraphrasing them, obviously. But they recognize that coming together as an African continent mattered more. Coming up, coming together as nations mattered more. And where we're, what we're seeing now is a, a man, an individual, a child, whatever you want to call him in this moment, not recognizing that. Recognizing 
that this is an opportunity for very much as um, you highlighted, Torrance, a legacy to be built and a space to say, well, we got that land back. Not so much we got our people back, but we got land back. We are powerful again. And I do think, and I, I think it needs to be highlighted that it came from an African nation because I think a lot of people tend to discredit their words. An African nation, I think, gave the best understanding of what's happening in this um, conflict than any other country ever would. And we'll be right back. And we're back. All right. So for today, we're going to talk about inflation and affordability right now in the U.S. And we're going to start with inflation. <laughs> you've probably heard a ton about inflation and you've probably seen prices rise. For example, like maybe in the grocery store and other places that you buy goods. You mean like inflatable pools? Yes, that's the one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was kind of gross. I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, inflation has risen 7.5% over the past year before the seasonal adjustments, which is a big deal. But something we've noticed here at Dangerously Likely is that inflation has been talked about mostly in the sense of how bad it will be for Democrats in the midterms. And while that's not necessarily a wrong argument or debate to have, and we'll probably have some of that today, there has not been a lot going into how it affects the general public, specifically our younger generations like us. So why is inflation happening? There are many, many factors that can cause inflation, including even just the general public having the expectation that prices will rise mm -hmm. can be a significant factor of how bad inflation gets and how long it lasts, which I always found interesting. Economics, after all, is a study of people. Um, this inflation has some base factors that are worth mentioning. Right now, the current uh, very bad state of the very complex global supply chain system caused by the pandemic and consumers having more purchasing power and having more appetite to actually pay higher prices than the past due to wage increases and even stimulus benefits like child tax credits that have put more money into the pockets of Americans. Now, that's not what you, what you will hear politicians, especially Democrats and Republicans claim, is the cause of inflation. Democrats specifically have messaging that has been along the lines of corporations are taking advantage of the unprecedented global economic circumstances to increase their profits simply because they can. And I do agree with this. I really, I think this is a, the right message to have. And I think it actually fits um, um, in terms of the midterms this year and getting elected. I think it's the right message to have, even though the vast majority of economists actually disagree with that line of messaging. Those that oppose to it argue that Democrats are not necessarily wrong that corporations have been consolidating and growing in market power, making the market less competitive, which makes it easier for those corporations to raise prices. But where they differ is that this is not the sole cause of inflation, especially since inflation has barely been happening for a year versus corporations doing all these bad things for literally the past forever. Years. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the other hand, Republicans blame inflation on government spending from things like the bipartisan infrastructure bill wrong about. and the COVID stimulus bill and whatnot. But, but also they pass a huge tax bill. So like, let's not ignore that. No, but I'm, I'm it's, it's misleading. Yeah. It's misinformation. It's probably disinformation, actually, especially for the reconciliation bills. The government has to make sure that the bill is paid for in order to pass them. And what's spent in those bills are actually spread out over several years, not all at once. Uh, these bills and this messaging admittedly gives a lot of people the impression that the massive government spending we've recently seen should be a contributing factor to inflation. But in reality, it's probably actually more of a non-factor. Mm -hmm. Um 
overall, whatever the cause, inflation is now the worst it's been in over four decades. And I really want to focus on how that hurts us, especially as a younger generation that has lived through numerous economic and geopolitical crises over the past 20 years. For me specifically, um, it used to be like an economical decision to just like get food and ingredients from the grocery store. And now in some cases, going out to get food can be cheaper than going to the grocery store for me, I have found. Yeah. Um, rent in Boise, where Charlotte and I live, has gone up exponentially to the point where it is one of the most expensive renters markets in the nation. Uh, only a few months ago, it still is. Um, and even then, it doesn't feel like wages are keeping up, especially um, for those of us trying to get into the job market for the first time, like me and some others that I know. Yeah. So I want to pass it off to both of you and kind of get your reaction. I know inflation has been something that the media has been freaking out about for like almost a year now. Yeah. And I kind of want to direct that conversation to how maybe it's affected both of you personally and or what you know about and just kind of our perspective as a generation. Hmm. I struggle here, right? Because I I do feel like the inflation conversation is not owning everything that we just highlighted of we're just coming out of a pandemic. A hundred percent the markets didn't plan for the demand that they were gonna see. On top of that, we had a work shortage or a workforce shortage, which slowed down the supply chain. Like there's all of these ands, right? Versus what we saw in the nineteen seventies under Carter, where um inflation was upwards of what 13%. So that resulted in, and I'm going to say this on the spot that resulted in one of the potential greatest presidents we had not being reelected. And I do feel like that narrative is being utilized as a mitigating force to withhold the Biden administration from being seen as a contender in 2024 among other things. But I think for our generation, it's, it's hard not to realize like I can't help but think about friends and acquaintances from high school who made the decision to stay at home and are now able to afford a house or live a different life than I am by moving across the country and doing it on my own. And that's not a shame on them. Honestly, I'm, I'm impressed and wish I would have done what they did. Um, but there is this understanding that really, truly, our generation has gone through some of the worst economic crises in American history. But we're also the generation that's not being represented in the government. So we're not getting the same payouts. We're not getting the same support. For me to even conceive of having a home right now, I need to be married with two kids. And that's not including childcare. And it's those type of pieces that I think are really being left out of this conversation, this narrative of the impact that inflation has, but even more so how just uh, detrimental our current economic system is for one of the largest um, populations in our country. For me, this is more of like, I feel like I look, I'm looking at it sort of twofold. 
And what I mean by that is there's, I think, an economic conversation about the economy and the role that businesses play in, in the cause of inflation. And then also, I think there's a political lens that we have to look we have to look at this through. And I'm going to try to tackle kind of both in, in one way. So I was looking at an article from Business Insider that was reporting on profit margins from the S&P 500 over the last year, um, where they the S&P companies did see record profit margins with, margins with a 13.1% margins posted in the second quarter of this year with it only dropping down to 12.9% in the third quarter of this year. Um, while we have seen steadily increases, uh, increase in um, prices at both the pump, at the grocery store for our, our normal um, everyday items. Um, and then what's really frustrating about that, alluding to the the point that was made about Democrats talking about corporations and, and CEOs kind of really capitalizing on the, on the opportunity for to increase their profit margins in this pandemic. Um, and I can go so as far as to quote um, the Kroger CFO, uh, Gary Millerchip, who said, quote, we've been very comfortable with our ability to pass on the increase that we've seen at this point, while also boasting and bragging about their profit margins. And it's like, how can you say out of one side of your mouth how great your profit margins are, but how comfortable you feel passing on the price to the consumer? Which speaks to the problem and the and the, the problem that comes from corporations. And this um, this Business Insider article also speaks about top executives being well aware of their quote pricing par, par, power during this inflationary moment. And if you pay close enough attention, um, they're letting slip how great this 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 time is for profit making. Um, you know, the CEOs and CFOs from PepsiCo and McCormick um, have both openly announced likely price increases this, for the rest of the year, while also, again, bolstering revenues, um, even as costs increase. So there is a point to be made about companies being what selfish, greedy, um, and, you know, only self-interested. And that's where I think that, like, our regulations and the the capitalism that we experience here in America is, is so unique because there's this very specific uh, selfishness and greed that I think is constantly at play in corporate America. But then to to kind of flip to the more political argument is that as you were alluding to, Terrell, about the personal impact of this is that, so we talked about, you talked about it in the intro, Caleb, about the bills that the reconciliation bills from the Democrats about how those have to be paid for, right? Those have things like extending the child tax credit, which is allowed for the inflation to have a less of an impact on families. This calls for um, paying for um, pre-K and child and child care um, in child care for families and has and, you know, and is not being passed, which would also alleviate some of the pain of inflation um, on American families. Um, I just think that these parts of the con- of the policy conversation are not being had. And I think that Politically, we are somewhat screwed in that this is policy stuff that we're talking about that most Americans are not interested in having a conversation about, but nonetheless are the exact things, if passed, would impact them and benefit them in a positive way um, to fight inflation. I mean, I think I think it's absolutely um, – <sighs> I, I struggle to find the correct word for it, but I just I just find it incredibly selfish that that the Republicans will go out there and talk about inflation and how and how terrible this is and how we're doing nothing about it while holding up a bill that would absolutely um, benefit American families and help alleviate the pain of inflation. It's just really difficult to have an honest conversation and, and, and through the political lens when that's the kind of messaging that the, that the Republican Party has on it while understanding the impact of inflation and the things they could do to help it. But because they understand it to be advantageous for them going into the midterms, they yeah. refuse to do anything. About it. I kind of get a little bit nerdy about the economics <laughs> of this. Of um, course you do. 
<laughs> we love that. <laughs> and I agree with you, Torrance. And I and again, I think this is the right message for Democrats to have is that corporate greed is responsible for inflation. Now, as I kind of mentioned before, most economists disagree with that assertion because that's not the sole cause in their opinion. And I don't know if they're wrong about it, but I think it's yeah. the right message to have because it's corporate greed, it's yeah. immoral, and it put you're putting the cost, you're pushing the cost that you're facing onto consumers, but you're doing it way more and using inflation as the excuse to bump jack up your prices way more than you actually need to. And you're kind of milking us of our money and stuff and hurting us in this time of economic, I don't know, craziness. It's not really a downturn, but it, I don't, no. I don't know. We're in a pandemic still, and that Ukraine. It's might very be volatile. Gone. I don't yeah. know. It's a vol- it's volatile, very, right? It's, it's a very it's volatile. A, it's a weird economic time, and and like I was saying, it's greedy, it's immoral, but it's also economics. Yeah. Companies are trying to maximize their profit, and pricing goes into that. Mm-hmm. Um. Here's an example I was actually reading from Bloomberg today is about how well Mercedes-Benz has done. And Mercedes-Benz is different because that's a luxury car brand and they're already more expensive in general. But they actually, as a company, haven't been making, they haven't had strong earnings for a long time. But what they've been able to do is they've been able to jack up their prices way more under the guise of inflation, um, more than they would have if... if um, The pandemic didn't happen? Yeah, more than they like. You have to. We have to understand that the pandemic did cause stuff. Like you said, Pepsi is raising their prices. The price of aluminum right now, I can tell you, has skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. It's like two hundred percent or something like that. That's probably a way wrong number, but it's way up there Mm -hmm. in terms of like the cost just to get aluminum for your cans of Pepsi. And then in the automotive industry, you have the chip shortage. You have again aluminum. You have all of these minerals that are in a shortage that has jacked up the prices and forced exactly. more conversations. Yeah. In, in, in the global supply chain situation right now is not helping it. So there is an expectation that corporations would increase their price a little bit to account for that cost because to maximize profit, you have to be able to push it to the consumers in some way. Mercedes-Benz did just that and they've had the best earnings they've had in years. And that's a luxury car brand. That's a little bit different right. than a Pepsi can. I mean, yeah. I'm but glad. all the corporations are doing that. And it's because of economics, but it's also because our incentive structures are all whack. Yes. And they favor right. profit maximizing more than they favor you and me trying to actually, I don't know, make a living. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> so, so what needs... I don't know what the exact answer to this is because there's so many factors that not only go into inflation, but also the incentive structure of it, that we really do have to rely on economists in the government, in the government itself, in policy to start to reverse that. Yeah. I mean, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine in Idaho, and I can't help but see this from politics, right? Like, Anyone who has ever listened to this podcast understands I am the political wonk. I am the campaigner. I study the polls. I do all these things, even though I hate polls. Whole nother story. (laughs) Um, What I struggle with is, what I struggle with is this friend brought up that the Obama-Biden ticket was just a revamp of the JFK LBJ ticket. And I think I talked to you about this a little bit, Caleb. A little bit. And that was my well, real, tell me more. That was my realization though. Like we don't have power in the situation. I cannot tell you how many times I listened to my mother talk about um, 
the death of JFK and the assassination and watching his son salute his dad for the last time. And then the pain that she felt when he unfortunately passed away from a plane crash. Like there was a generational connection to his son and also a view that he was going to be president at some point in time where he was going to make a real run for politics. Our generation has lacked that. And when we talk about these conversations, we highlight inflation and we highlight all of these policies that are passing. It is amazing that our Congress is talking about childcare. But I also know a lot of people in our generation who don't want to have kids, not because they can't, but because they are genuinely worried about what an economy looks like when they have children. And climate change, too. And climate, <laughs> and climate change. change. Right. Yeah. And it's it's those pieces where it, recognizing that for the Democrats specifically, the the Obama-Biden ticket was their version of JFK. That was them trying to tap into the quote-unquote younger generation. And I don't feel that connection to Obama. He, I viewed him more as a parent. I viewed him as an older individual. I didn't view him as an um, Asaf who is now in Senate. I didn't view him as an AOC or all these people who really truly understand what, and I don't want to speak for y'all, but what I would argue our generation is understanding and feeling in these spaces. And when we talk about buying power, there is a egregious conversation around um, student loan payments and should they be canceled? Should they not be canceled? And I would argue that one of the reasons this country among very few countries made it out of the pandemic in a sense of stability is because there was an entire generation that felt they had a new buying power. They didn't have to worry about this mounting debt that's been sitting on them because they want an education. They didn't care about all of these other pieces um, and take that apart and piece it off as you will. But I do think that that plays a lot into this conversation of when I look at Congress and when I'm advocating for policies, I don't always feel that our priorities are at the forefront. It's well, let's include this for Medicaid expansion and let's include this for Medicare expansion. Let's do all of these other pieces. Not so much what happens to the millennial that doesn't want to have a child, but doesn't get the tax credit for being married, doesn't get the tax credit for having children, doesn't receive the tax credit for having joint finances. All of these things that make our tax structure specifically more impactful for individuals of our parents' class. I think so... You're very much right. And I think that that's a huge part of this conversation, right? And it's ultimately why I think that a lot of this is unsustainable when if it goes unaddressed, especially with our generation. So I was taking a look at this graph that when I, of, um, from the article I was referencing earlier about the S&P 500 and its um, growth over time. And there's only three times since 1950 that there's been any significant drop um, in their profit margins. And that was 01 after the World Trade Center and on 9-11, in 2008 after the crash, and in 2020 with the pandemic. Otherwise, it has had incredible increases in profits over time. Um, record now, obviously, post-pandemic, which is ridiculous, while the rest of us have been, very, have been suffering the impact of the pandemic, right? But when we're talking about the record profit margins from these companies, I was also looking at the, you know, the increase in wages and whether those are commensurate with the increase in profit. And they're not, right? These companies are not reinvesting in people and thus not reinvesting in us as, as 
employees. And what I mean by that, in reference to the entire economic impact of this, is that we are we have a higher cost of education, higher cost of healthcare, higher cost of living, higher cost of housing than our than the previous generations altogether. Without the same um, when adjusted for inflation, um, increase in wages since the seventies. Right, we've had a stagnation of wages for nearly forty years. At what point, right, do we do we have to pose the question to corporate America, to our economy, to our government, that this is unsustainable and that it is not it does not incentivize having a family, having a business, invest in it and further investing in this economy. That does not work for us. And so I think that there's a very large conversation that has to take place um, around this topic. Because when I, I was referencing, I wanted to reference it earlier, but I didn't, that why is it that our Republican uh, members of, of our government completely understand capitalism when it comes to taxes, completely understand capitalism when it comes to lack of regulations, completely understands capitalism and all of those through all of those lens, but does not understand the impact that capitalism is going to have on our overall e economy when it comes to the selfishness and greed and the lack of investment in our country. Um, and, and the long-term impact of that. And, and when I say that, I mean negative. Um, so, of course, there's as far as talking about generational wealth, talking about the, the, the wealth gap between generations, the bur the economic burden that we face that our, our parents and our grandparents did not face, the lack of incentives that come from our government to, to do those things that grow the economy. There's a really large conversation that has to be had there because, yeah, climate change is a big, is a big part of it, but I couldn't afford to have a child right now. So of course I'm not going to make the ignorant decision to have one without having to rely on, on the on the government for assistance because the same social safety nets that 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 were a part of the fabric of our economy and our in our government in the 50s, 60s and 70s no longer exist. Mm -hmm. My last point of this because this you're right this is a larger conversation and I believe we'll be having it a lot more in the future about more specific kind of uh, areas of this. But my last point is that every 80 or so years in the US, there is a very big generational battle. And that takes place in a lot of forms. One of them has been the Civil War. One of them has been the Civil Rights Movement. And I think we're entering another phase of it with between us and the people who are still trying to hold on power. So your point that you made that Republicans understand capitalism this way, but then don't the other way, mm -hmm. it's all about retaining that power. And it's going to go away soon. It hasn't happened yet, but I think we are going to experience it in our lifetimes. And we'll be right back. Take us on a tangent, Caleb. All right. So my tangent today is going to be pretty quick and also very related to what we just talked about in our main story, um, related in terms of economics and incentives. Ugh. So I had an interesting kind of moment in my economics class the other day. Um, one of my students in my cohort asked a question kind of in regards, I don't remember the exact wording, but it was in regards to how we can stop climate change, like with the current way that economics works and how our global supply chain is set up and really just how the globe, uh, uh, the system of finances and all of that, just the whole financial system of the globe works mm -hmm. and how we can stop climate change through it. And my teacher gave us a very um, sobering answer. And I, I trust that he's pretty much right because I, he is a very, uh, uh, I, I'd say he's probably an expert in economics. He's 
He knows his stuff. Let's just mm-hmm. say that. And he said that it's going to be incredibly difficult to actually reverse all of what we've done to the planet and actually do stuff for climate change because of the incentive structure of our financial global system absolutely does not favor it at all. No. And how we can actually get it to favor it, it's going to take the whole world to fix that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's literally going to be, it's not like a burn it down situation, but it's a go into every part of this system and fix it so we can incentivize things like, I don't know, our survival and our planet survival. <laughs> and I don't know, it just had me thinking because it's it's a sobering thought. I've, I'm still optimistic, but it's just one of those things that based off our conversation earlier, um, I just feel like our generational battle and someday us actually getting some voice in government and stuff can't come soon enough. Torrance, take us on a tangent. Oh, gee. Okay, so I guess I, I was really struggling to decide what my tangent was today, but I actually think because of the content of our um, conversation today, I'm going to go with something a little more um, light, which is, <laughs> of course, the, Os- the Oscars are coming up, and I'm very, very excited. I'm very, very excited about the Oscars, and there's two things I really want to highlight um, that are happening. So there are two new awards that will be um, voted on from the fans, which is not something. So the, the Academy Awards are voted by members of the Academy, and um, a lot of they get a lot of I think flack and a lot of criticism for the fact that a lot of times the movies that are nominated by the Academy and then win by the Academy are not movies that are largely um, and, and this not always but are not largely big fan favorites right are not are not movies that a bunch of people are going to you know for example i think that comes to mind this year is uh spider-man no way home which is you know the now the the, one of the biggest box office earning movies um in history um so they have introduced two new new awards which is the um fan favorite award um and it's gonna be like you can vote by voting on twitter using the hashtag oscars fan favorite and you just kind of submit what what movie that you want and then that will be um that will be uh, awarded at the show and then also the second was and it's not in this article but I know, i'm recalling it um oh the the audience applause moment so like so a movie where there was like an audience applause which i know is kind of interesting in terms of the academy awards because i actually think if i'm right it'll be the same movie i would put my hat in the ring to say that the fan favorite will end up being spider-man no way home and the audience applause moment will be when the other Spider Men, oh, spoiler alert, uh, come into uh, come into frame uh, in Spider Man okay, cool. No Way Marvel's Home. Taking us off the air today, so that's fine. <laughs> because you because you know I lost it. I was like Andrew Garfield, my sir, please. Uh, I love him. Okay, he's fair, my favorite. Fair. He's my favorite Spider Man. I was so happy and I was screaming in the movie theater. Um, but then also the other really welcome news um, is that the they announced that Amy Schumer, Regina Hall, and Wanda Sykes will be hosting the Oscars, um, which is really exciting. We got, you know, two black women and a white woman, three people who I think will bring a lot of levity to the to the uh, to the occasion, um, mm-hmm. but also are are largely non controversial, which is something new for the Oscars. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Terrell, how about you take us on a tangent? I just want to add, while you might think it's going to be Spider Way No Man Home, No Way Home, I haven't seen it. Full transparency, I'm that person. Um, Army of the Dead has been like trending on Twitter for the last few weeks. I didn't even know that there was a hashtag Oscar fan favorite. I just knew that Army of the Dead was trending. So I just want to put that there. 
I don't want you to be disappointed if there was an upset. Um, no, I won't be. I won't be. <laughs> speaking of upsets, but you should though, watch it before we make any further oh, judgments. I haven't watched Army of the Dead either. I have no. I'm very removed from the Oscars this year, just out of pure. I don't care. Uh, um, but speaking on upsets and frustrations, I'm just gonna like bring up sports because that's what I apparently have been doing lately. Um, even though it's not a sports podcast, here we are. <laughs> um, no, I. So a lot's happened in Michigan sports specifically, but just like Midwestern sports, like there's a whole conversation about Aaron Rodgers and where he's going next and all of these things. I think the NFL needs to force him to retire the same way they did Colin Kaepernick. He made a political statement. People didn't like it. It had negative press for the NFL, forced him to leave. I just think. Oh, but he's white, so don't think twice about uh, that. Funny you mentioned that because I do think sports are starting to show their race a lot lately, um, specifically with Aaron Rodgers' situation, but also with the Michigan versus Wisconsin situation. It is very fascinating to me that the head coach of the University of Michigan received a five day suspension for supporting and protecting his player. Um, for individuals who are watching this, uh, I think two days ago now, full transparency. I don't remember exact date of the game. I had a long weekend. <laughs> um, there was an altercation that happened towards the end of the game. The head coach for Wisconsin. I love the term altercation. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the head coach for Wisconsin had his white male privilege and felt like he deserved to be responded to grabbed the head coach of the University of Michigan. I think I said Wisconsin. If I didn't, sorry. Um, grabbed the um, head coach of Michigan. And he made very clear, like, don't touch me. And then he used an explicitive and said, don't touch me again. That head coach didn't listen. And it proceeded to cause some issues. The situation is being diffused by a series of players. And then the assistant coach for Wisconsin decided to add himself into the conversation, add words that were unnecessary, and physically push off of a player. That then triggered the head coach of Michigan. I'm not using names or terms very intentionally here. Um, That then insinuated and triggered the head coach of Michigan to open palm hit the assistant coach of Wisconsin. Sometimes you get slapped when you do dumb things. And while there are a lot of Caucasians that are frustrated and angry by that i do think it it speaks volumes to what the frustration is here right of there is an african-american head coach that stood up for his player that stated his boundary stated don't touch me don't explicit touch me and the white male ignored it that white male received a ten thousand dollar fine compared to the african-american head coach who received a forty thousand dollar fine and a five game suspension and there's five call- game, not you said five day, I think originally five, five games, game suspension? five games. He's out Dear for the remainder Lord. of the regular season. Um, and it's just like, huh. After all of these, after the fact that the NFL has to not only do the national anthem, but also do America, the beautiful for African-Americans, because apparently we can't not like the national anthem too. Um, there just seems to be these tones of racial insensitivity that are just becoming a little bit more provocateur. I think that while people might be frustrated with what happened in the Michigan situation, there needs to be context and understanding that he was justified. 
Well, I just want to say that if we were really going to be trying to, in the NFL, play or sing a song that speaks to the African-American experience, it would be Lift Every Voice and Sing. Correct. America the Beautiful. So, you know, there is some, you know, incorrectness there. But all I have to say about your tangent is the caucasity. Yeah. (laughs) Also, let's not forget the frustration over the Super Bowl halftime show and how it was too much. And then everyone, like, I love Eminem. Kudos for him for taking knee, but I do think it's really again funny that a white rapper took a knee in solidarity for the culture that created him. And there's not a bunch of outpouring. Actually, people are highlighting it like, oh, he had a whole conversation with the execs of the NFL and they told him not to do it and he did it anyway. Like, tell me how much you love white saviorism. Um, meanwhile, Colin Kaepernick that, still doesn't have a job. The thing about that, though, Terrell, is that they're mm-hmm. pit- some people are pissed about him taking a knee during that performance. Not It's not during the national anthem. Not during so, the national so anthem at you, all. You are making the explicit point that this had shit to do with the yeah. national anthem. You are making it very clear that black people or people who support the black community taking any form of protest at, on that stage is not okay with you, even apart from the national anthem. Your racism is clear. It is overt. It is heard. And we've got your number. Yeah. A number. So I don't fuck with the NFL. <laughs> I don't. I disagree with that. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerously at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen for notifications of our newest episodes. I'm Terrell. I'm Caleb. And I'm Torrance. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week.